Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Jason Winsunis, part of the research team that brings you evidence-based insights to open debates, broaden perspectives, and catalyze progress. And to promote some of that progress, our topic today is related to an article we published earlier in the year about the spread of misinformation, particularly when it comes to Asia and COVID-19. You can still read that research on the Perspectives website. Go to impact.economist.com slash perspectives. The title is Fact or Fiction, Overcoming Health Misinformation. And in the interest of transparent information, that article, as well as this edition of the Asia Perspectives podcast, are both supported by Google. But as always, our research is independent and editorial control remains with the Economist Impact team. In this episode, we're digging a bit deeper into the concept of mis- and disinformation, where it comes from, and how to combat it. Joining me to give their insights are two people who are well-versed in the effort to track and counteract misinformation in Asia. Masato Kajimoto, Associate Professor at Hong Kong University in the Journalism and Media Studies Center. He's an educator specializing in misinformation ecosystems and research in Asia, as well as news literacy. He also runs a fact-checking newsroom at the university called Annie Lab, which you can find online at annielab.org. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Also with us today is Saeed Nazikat. He's an award-winning journalist and founder and CEO of Data Leads, which is a digital media and information initiative. You can find it at dataleads, that's L-E-A-D-S, dot C-O dot I-N. He's also founder of Health Analytics Asia, where he and his team are on the front line of reporting on COVID-19. He also leads a fact-check training initiative in India, which has resulted in the launch of many additional fact-checking initiatives in multiple languages, benefiting more than 1,100 newsrooms and over 700 universities across India. That effort is also supported by Google News Initiative, which is coincidental to the Google support for this podcast. Welcome, Saeed. Thank you so much. Really glad to be here. So COVID-19 has proven to be very fertile ground for misinformation, but it is by no means where the problem started. Misato, back in 2018, the Journalism and Media Studies Center already released a report about misinformation ecosystems in Asia-Pacific, and you were the lead editor on that, I believe. So can you give us some top-line findings from that study and give us a sense for the scale and the impact of misinformation that you found then and how or if the picture has changed since COVID-19? Well, I would say it changed a lot. So one thing I can say for sure about the current misinformation ecosystem is that this field moves on very quickly. So I'm not quite sure how relevant it is to talk about our observation in 2018 because a lot has changed since. For example, many countries in Asia now has a specific law or regulation or a series of regulations to penalize so-called fake news. And it wasn't the case uh, three years ago. I mean, Singapore, the Philippines, the Malaysia, they all have now laws to restrict what people can say on social media and elsewhere when it comes to potentially problematic false content, right? And um, many countries such as Vietnam, Thailand, India, as well. They do have governmentally financed and governmentally run fact-checking organizations and agencies. It wasn't the case three years ago. And in a way, COVID-19 has definitely contributed to uh, these changes because the government has easier 
time now to justify how they could um, spend their time and resources to tackle misinformation, right? So I think, yes, right now, what we are seeing is very different from the landscape we observed in 2018. Are there any differences that you discovered when you were doing that report, or maybe even now, differences between Asian countries in terms of the struggles or, or what the drivers were? I think motivations can be quite different from country to country. In some countries, financial incentives uh, drive bad actors. They create contents to get more clicks and views, and that's their main driver for their activities. Whereas in other countries, it's politics or religion or socially polarizing specific issues. And those differ from country to country. And unfortunately, in some countries, uh, governments and mainstream media they are also big disseminators of unsubstantiated claims. So if you compare different countries, even though the problem is definitely universal, if you look closer, each country has its own different uh, own motivation, own unique aspects, I would say. Therefore, how to tackle this problem can be different from country to country as well. Saeed, in your work, have you seen some of those same issues, especially with uh, like the data reporting that you do? You know, I, I completely agree with Masato said. You know, is a things fundamentally changed actually in the last four or five years. Maybe perhaps because also that a lot of new people, millions of new people, have come to the internet for the first time. And then the last two years have been COVID, where people had a lot of time. They were at home. They ended up actually spending more time online, and they ended up also producing more content online. And naturally, that also created a lot of you know misinformation as well, because a lot of people, unfortunately, in our part of the world, still lack uh, basic media literacy. They really do not see difference between what is getting published on newspaper and what's, what is being put on Facebook and Twitter. They see it of the same value. And, and, and the older generation particularly, I think they kind of for, of a lot of misinformation in, in research, which was conducted in India as well last year and shared by different people. But then we also led an initiative which was called Factshala in India, which was a media literacy initiative that also actually brought to us conclusion that, you know, the local languages actually kind of do not get enough attention when it comes to fact checking and what's happening in different places in small towns. And we saw, at least in India, the majority of misinformation was actually spreading in local languages, in Hindi, in Urdu, in Malayalam, in Tamil. And unfortunately, there was no effort at a grassroots level to address uh, this challenge. So I, I think things are changing quite fast. And the scale of misinformation has certainly escalated. And COVID has really brought a new dimension to it because uh, the governments are actually trying to control what people can share on social media or not. And that has a ramification, larger ramification for free press in the region as well. So on that media leadership point, is that something that your organization is trying to help with? Is it an area that specifically you look at? Or is that something that should be the realm of government, for instance? You know, I think, I think a state has a big role because they run these massive institutes, colleges, universities and all. And we think it should be certainly a subject to teach as a, a very fundamental level. And I think in, in some colleges and universities in India now, there's a lot of discussion about it, how to include media literacy in a very early, you know, early classes. But I think certainly the larger society in that way, the media, the other stakeholders, community radio stations, newspapers, I think is a whole society approach at the end of the day, because I don't think a single player will be able to deal with or address the challenges of misinformation, the way the technology has given, you know, the new shape to the misinformation. 
So in India, for example, that I think that has been an effort at least from since 2018 when we started an initiative which was supported by Google at that time. And that was the first major initiative in the country. That time there were hardly couple of fact checkers in the country and which had a reach of some thousand audiences. Uh, today, uh, India has one of the highest number of IFCN signatories. Like in this one initiative alone, we have almost reached almost 700 plus universities. We have trained 50,000 plus editors, journalists, reporters in different languages, more than I think 11 languages so far. So I think there's a lot of space, you know, in the region, in, in Malaysia, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in all these countries, because somehow there's no pace in the media actually in terms of what's happening with technology and i think a lot of traditional way of reporting storytelling was is still wonderful there's a great work happening the challenges the social media is bringing there was a very little discussion about it but i think globally because of a lot of global efforts actually and we, we have been benefited from that i think the lot larger discussions even in bangladesh we are seeing uh, the local organizations they are coming together starting a media literacy initiative there in bhutan as well i saw bhutan media foundation actually starting a media literacy initiative there. So I think somewhere down the line, there's an agreement that it needs a collaboration uh, of different stakeholders to come together. Tech companies have been also, to some extent, uh, you know, also willing to be open about the discussion. They're supporting some initiatives at some level. There are more conferences, workshops, you know, happening with dedicated team on how to address misinformation. We're also seeing at a global level, particularly during the COVID, WHO took a global, you know, lead in terms of creating something which they never did before, which was the infodemic management course for doctors and healthcare workers, essentially helping also doctors to get trained to identify the differences of different kind of social media content and give them tools uh, so that they can actually identify misinformation. So I think uh, almost everybody, there's this consensus that misinformation, to fight misinformation, to prevent it, to address it, we need to collaborate with each other and it needs a whole society approach. This podcast is brought to you by Google. At Google, more than 20,000 people work to detect, review, and remove potentially harmful content. Google uses a combination of smart detection technology and highly trained human reviewers to consistently enforce our policies with increasing speed. Google is constantly making improvements and remains committed to progress in this space. In the fact or fiction article that we released earlier this year, COVID-19 was one of the main issues that we were addressing and how misinformation was and is still fueling anti-vaccine sentiment in, in India. Said, how did you observe that playing out? Like in Hong Kong, for example, where I am, we had a lot of vaccine hesitancy, which seemed to grow out of misunderstandings as much as misinformation. And that often spreads in chat groups. But in India, what do you believe were the sources of misinformation? Was it social media or chat groups or was it just sloppy journalism? You know, that's, that's a very good question, actually. I think that there were a couple of phases of misinformation related to COVID. And when it all started, actually, there were a lot of misinformation about the source of the virus, particularly in India. So people quickly started boycotting Chinese restaurants in Delhi. There was this theory that, you know, uh, this is a through a bat. The source is a bat. And then uh, the kind of uh, xenophobic, actually, you know, the attendances towards, uh, the, particularly to the Chinese, you know, the citizens, and that, that was quite, you know, widespread videos showing the Chinese going for a particular dish, which was, was the source of the misinformation. And then, but quickly, then it, it spread to the how COVID actually uh, moves from one person to another. There were a lot of misinformation about that. 
then there was a massive migration in India actually because during the lockdown and there were a lot of misinformation about advisories which were issued by the government or not issued by the government and they will circulate on a WhatsApp saying people that tomorrow the airports will be closed so you need to rush tonight and move back to your villages and all and thousands and thousands of people actually went to railway stations, bus stations, thinking that there will be no bus after this. And that really created a ruckus, that really created confusion. It really harmed a lot of people. The industries got shut down in one week. And then somehow in in the middle of all that, there was a lot of Islamophobic content as well, particularly in India. Uh, There were a lot of, you know, like discussion on social media that Muslims deliberately separate coronavirus and they're, they're spitting on food. And there was a particular religious, Muslim religious gathering happening in Delhi. And, uh, and then they were also accused of deliberately spreading the misinformation. And uh, then we reached a stage actually, you know, like where there were a lot of attacks on doctors as well, because they were seen, they were forcing people to get vaccinated and all. And that would also, because of misinformation, a lot of videos which were circulating saying, hey, if you take the vaccine, um, uh, it may harm your DNA, it may harm your heart, you may get, you may die because of vaccine. And if you're pregnant, you can't take it. There were also videos which were actually essentially saying if you take vaccine, it may make you infertile and all. So all this misinformation actually really exaggerated the whole problem and slowed down the response, particularly when the vaccines came, because there's already a hesitant you know, response to vaccines, to other vaccines in India. We have millions of kids every year who don't really get vaccinated because of vaccine hesitancy. But then for COVID, actually, it became quite a major one, actually. And then we had uh, some states where the vaccine rates were extremely low and people were just reluctant. Not only the people from, like you can say, who have no formal education, but even educated people actually started saying, no, we will not take it unless government releases the data, how these vaccines were cleared so quickly, because usually vaccines take a couple of years, 10 years, 15 years, how they came up with this you know, whole uh, vaccine within a couple of weeks and all. And then there's a global conspiracy behind the vaccines, uh, you know, to do this and that. So a lot of misinformation about actually vaccines at the initial stage. But then what really happened actually was that also, I think a lot of senior uh, public figures took vaccine in front of camera. That really helped actually to build the confidence. And I think a lot of leaders as well, a lot of prominent figures, writers, and journalists as well. So a lot of doctors uh, took medicine uh, vaccine in front of cameras that somehow helped people to have some confidence. And slowly we saw that that misinformation kind of was not really affecting a lot of people. But still, even today, we see, and I was having a discussion yesterday, just day before yesterday, with one of the senior most officially in one of the India's biggest state, and he was saying vaccine hesitancy is one of the biggest challenges to vaccinate people in his state. And what about media itself? Masato, you're a media teacher, but how is media a contributor to misinformation spread? And what can we do to curtail that? Or maybe another way to ask this might be, how can journalists themselves improve the way that that we write stories or headlines that could help public understanding? I mean, it's a really difficult question to answer, (laughs) quite frankly, but um, the countries that I monitor and observe, I see this trend among some news organizations to sensationalize the coverage of COVID-19 and vaccines. So for example, if somebody dies after two days of getting a vaccine, and that's widely reported everywhere in that particular country, even though experts all agree that there is no correlation between vaccination and death. Maybe this person had heart problem to begin with, or people die every day, right, for different reasons. But it seems like 
many journalists are not quite aware of how problematic it can be to have such kind of headline. Even though if you actually read the article, it says at the very towards the end uh, that, well, experts find no link between vaccination and death. But if the headline says this person died two days after vaccination, obviously the news audience make that association. And that kind of examples are quite common now. Um, another example in Hong Kong was the toilet paper run, the panic buying of toilet papers. It started as a rumor on the internet. In our monitoring, we detected early in the morning. Uh, it was spreading through WhatsApp. And I told my students that, well, this is ridiculous. It's not going to like catch on. It's going to die down. <laughs> and how long was I at the time? Well, in the afternoon, people are rushing to the supermarket. And unfortunately, many reporters and journalists started videotaping those people who are lining up at 7-Eleven to buy toilet papers. Many journalists, uh, some TV stations tried to send their camera crews to live report from packed supermarket. That actually created an environment where people thought, okay, I have to buy toilet papers now, otherwise it's going to run out. The rumor was that uh, factories in mainland China that are producing toilet papers are getting closed down Therefore, there will be no supply in Hong Kong. And that was not true at all. When the rumor was spreading, supermarket chains, actually there are two or three big ones in Hong Kong, all of them came out publicly and said, we have enough supply to sustain for the next six months if you buy those toilet papers normally. So please don't panic. Government also announced the same thing, but that didn't stop people from, you know, overacting or reacting. Uh, that's simply because news media have been pounding on people saying that, well, toilet papers running out, this supermarket shelves are all empty, and here's the photo. So I think what journalists can do is to think about the consequences of their news reporting. And if there might be any chance of being misunderstood or creating a panic, or then you should probably think twice. I, I don't know. Um, another thing I want to say is the science literacy um, among journalists and also the news audience. Uh, I, I agree with the side completely that COVID-19, the scale of the spread of misinformation is massive. Even in our standard, you know, I've been monitoring misinformation ecosystem since 2012. And this is kind of unprecedented because lots of spread of misinformation is very organic. Those elders who are sharing information about vaccines causing problems, they're not bad actors in our definition. They are genuinely concerned about the safety so that's the reason why they want to share the information with their friends and families. And there are those lots of organic spreads of misinformation happening right now. When that happens, then usual suspects and bad actors will obviously take advantage of that, right? So Islamophobia, for example, is a good example. Those people who are always active in producing hateful content towards certain minority groups in the country they take advantage of such environment and try to, you know, make use of people's fear and concerns. So I think journalists should be aware of how misinformation uh, spreads and try to understand how they themselves is also a part of the ecosystem. I mean, ultimately, in my view, what journalists can do is limited because by the time, I mean, fact-checking is one example of what fact, uh, journalists can do, but fact-checking is time-consuming. By the time you fact-check one or two potentially harmful claims, there will be 250 other potentially harmful claims people are sharing. 
So if you want to win this war of reaching out more people, you can never compete with uh, misinformation, with fact-checking stories or very quality news reporting. You just don't have the speed and uh, reach compared with misinformation, if that makes any sense. So I think recalibrating the um, expectation on the side of the news organizations is also very important. Your job is not to like fight against the misinformation and false claims per se. Your job or task here is to set the record straight. When people are trying to find information about certain claims, that's when your story has to be there on the internet somewhere. So if people want to fact check, your article is there. Yeah, so that reminds me of one of the conclusions that we came up with in the Fact or Fiction article. It's that it's so easy to just push a button and send out ideas into the world. So could that same technology also be part of a solution? Like, Do we need some cooperation, though, maybe between policymakers and medical or science professionals uh, with, with the digital platforms? Like, Are there any blueprints, for example, out there f- where this type of collaboration has happened? So at the moment, at least Twitter and YouTube are getting rid of all anti-vaccine content, at least in English. We see a lot of those in other languages, but at least in English, uh, there are less anti-vaccine messages on Twitter and YouTube. So platforms are doing something about this. How effective would that be? I mean, we have to wait and see. Third-party fact-checking is something that Facebook has been running for many years now, uh, three, four years. I, Well, some fact-checkers I talked to in my research said, yes, they can actually see the claims that they debunked are no longer spreading after they flagged the content um, through Facebook's system. So in a way, if you're looking at certain types of misinformation and claims, yes, third-party fact-checking with Facebook seems to be working, but the same claim can be also spreading on chat up messages like, you know, WhatsApp, Line, Kakao Talk, Viber, different countries have different favorite chat apps. So overall, I'm not quite sure how effective third-party fact-checking is. In fact, it, there are many misinformation that have not been checked yet on Facebook. They are spreading quite rapidly and quickly. So yes, there is a role for platforms and they can do something about it, changing the algorithms, uh, looking at coordinated behaviors. So for example, one of the common strategies on the side of bad actors is to create tens of thousands of fake accounts and produce the misinformation simultaneously. So even though it's just one actor, it's actually 10,000 accounts posting similar information and they are sharing with each other. So that particular content will trend from computer algorithms. But at the same time, if they're using that kind of technique, it's also easy to detect on the platform side. So yes, there are things you can do. How effectively that can be, that I think still remains to be seen. Said, on that cooperation point, have you seen any communication where that's been working? No, honestly, I think that's fundamental, to be honest, uh, to address, you know, the misinformation and build a long term strength, actually, among communities like we, we in 2015, you know, uh, this is how our collaboration with doctors started on health related misinformation. In 2015, we brought 20 doctors and 20 journalists together on a boot camp, essentially asking them how to improve evidence based reporting on health and how to fact check. And I, I was quite surprised the willingness from doctors to be part of the journalistic initiative. My early affair 
was maybe they may perhaps come for half an hour and go because uh, they remain quite busy in hospital. But they spend the, that whole day there with us. And that initiative we took to almost like to 11, 12 countries in the last five, six years. Right now, we have a team of, I think, it's all volunteer, more than 50 doctors based in 40 plus countries. And they work uh, with our fact-checking team on day-to-day basis. They are available for expert comments because a lot of uh, misinformation is essentially unscientific claims, which can be just debunked by expert opinion in terms of what science says about it. So I think that became really powerful during this COVID because this network was existing much, much before the COVID. In fact, in 2019, just six months before the COVID, we had a summit in Singapore. It was called Misinformation Medicine uh, in collaboration with Google, in where we invited more than 200 scientists, doctors and journalists and they were in a room discussing different possible, you know, like uh, possible solutions uh, to essentially to health-related misinformation. I think that really is working well. I see WHO globally taking a lead in terms of building capacities of doctors as well, because what's happening also during COVID, particularly, we saw also doctors, perhaps by because of mistake or because of ignorance, as uh, sharing something on Facebook, something on Twitter, which later was not really scientifically true, and then they apologize for it. But given the doctors are so well, you know, like respected, uh, their words became innocent, kind of what's of forwards and all, and that also misled a lot of people. So I think collaboration is certainly very important uh, to fight misinformation. I can see a lot of role for technologists, uh, data scientists in terms of helping to figure out tech solutions, how to identify misinformation. And I think like the tools, like uh, there have been a number of tools in the last five, six years, which came uh, very helpful in terms of fact-checking or identifying different sources of info, like Invid, you know, it works amazingly well on videos. And we saw that's really helpful, very simple tool, but extremely helpful. We saw Amnesty coming up with a tool which is helping how to verify videos on YouTube and so many other tools, actually. But I think eventually, and that's my little bit understanding about the whole thing, you know, it's like, Historically, for thousands of years, we were collecting information as a journalist, as, as a media professionals, and then trying to share that information with people. We were always searching for information. But I think in the last 10, 15 years, the whole you know, landscape has changed, and we're having a huge, massive information out there already. I think perhaps the job of journalists and future storytellers is to how to make sense of this information. And you can't make the sense of this information, given at the, the scale of content, just by manually going through it. So I think this it, there is a space, there is a you know possibility of technology uh, can actually empower us to do better job, at least in detecting, at least in mapping content, at least in trying to figure out different trends, actually. Like in last year, we did a one project, which was very interesting in the middle of COVID. It was about what are people searching on internet? And what does that tell us about oh, kind of misinformation which is going around? So, and what we did, a team of, we had a team of 12 doctors and then our data team and journalists together for one year. And they went through that research project and it was focused on India, but essentially looking at different cities and different parts of India, what people are searching related to health on the internet. It was fascinating insight, to be honest. It was about very simple questions, as simple, can I get newspaper? Is there a risk of taking newspaper home uh, Will it infect my family? Or where will I get this particular medicine in the shop if that shop is closed? Or some very basic, simple question which people are searching on the internet. And that gave us a some insight about the vectors, possible vectors of misinformation. 
And we were actually thinking, is there a possibility of we can set up something like a early warning, you know, like a, a system, like the way we have for cyclones? Can we set up something like that for misinformation? If people are searching for something and there's no information available from official sources, for you know, like from accurate sources, is there a possibility that we can provide that information quickly to them? Because they're also understanding that a lot of misinformation also circulates when there's no good information available, when the government decides that they're not sharing information, they're not giving information to public what's happening. So then the misinformation also finds a way to go around and mislead people. So I think in the long term, the technology should be really like a helping um, the humanity to deal with this crisis, actually. Otherwise, it's going to be a massive, massive global challenge and everybody is running his own 10 different accounts and it can actually you know manipulate everything our thinking our way of decision making the way we vote the way we elect our representatives and if we do not really have capacities to distinguish what is bad information actually so i think somewhere down the line i see a good role of technologists uh, working with different stakeholders with journalists as well and certainly a better i can say a better in-depth understanding as well that's why research is so important and unfortunately, you know, like it's, it's one of the things we are really lacking in this whole space is a deep dive research. There are a lot of initiatives, but we don't know the, the, the assessment of these initiatives, whether they're really helping people, whether this initiative is really uh, making difference on the ground, and whether it's really at the same scale which we need, actually. Because if the scale is not matching, no matter how much effort you do, it's not going to really help us as a society. So I certainly see a, we need a very deep research as well in terms of understanding the nature, the shifting nature of the misinformation, and then trying to have people, certainly with uh, competencies, with technology, to come forward and have a have a technological solutions as well. Masada, you had mentioned new laws coming online, and we're almost out of time, but I want to try and cover this question about governments. Many in, in Asia-Pacific are starting to consider passing new legislation on misinformation. Do you see any problems with that? Like, for example, if it's required for publishers to take down some information, but without any scope for trying to correct it or counteract it in some way, is that going to be a challenge for society? Of course, I see big problems in governments or authorities deciding what is true, what is facts and what is not. And especially when the topics are political, governments and authorities have conflict of interest, to say the least. And it could also have intimidating effect on uh, journalists and people in general. If I say this, would government think I'm lying or I'm faking something? Maybe I should stop doing this. So self-censorship could be happening. Um, so there are lots of drawbacks. But the interesting thing is, and I don't know if this is due to COVID-19 situation right now, but when I did a research in fact-checking landscape in Asia last year, I talked to many fact-checking organizations. I looked at 40 organizations in 18 different countries and regions in Asia. To my surprise, there are many fact-checkers who said, well, at this point, I don't mind collaborating with governments because lots of people are believing in nonsense and it's a public health issue that we have to tackle right now. So if government's doing fact-checking, we can help them. If government is is thinking about laws, yes, of course, they are against it in general because, again, that can be used in very different ways and author authoritarian governments tend to abuse um, such regulations. 
But with that said, there are many journalists and fact-checking organizations I talk to in our region saying that we have to find ways to work with the governments and authorities. And that was a bit surprising to me because in you know, more mature democratic societies with press freedom, it's a bit hard to imagine journalists willingly collaborating with governments all the time. But it seems like in Asia, that might be at least something that we should try out and see how it goes. Because otherwise, like Said said, uh, it's a massive scale problem and we have to start from somewhere. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there because we've used up our time, but I'm really glad you could both join us today. Thank you both for your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alon. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It was wonderful. And thank you as well to our listeners for spending the time with us. Misinformation is likely to be a continuing challenge in Asia and globally, so I encourage you to visit our guest organization's sites. And please do read our fact or fiction article on the Economist Impact Perspectives website. Today's conversation was supported by Google. We're very grateful for the company for helping to provide a platform to discuss this topic. Please do check the show notes for any links to related research. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from Economist Impact, you can email to asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again from the editorial team. Please subscribe to Asia Perspectives to make sure you don't miss an episode.